BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Tina Brown spills some royalty. And Omid Scobie backs up Prince Harry's assertion that the Queen needs protecting. And Donald Trump drags the Sussexes on Piers Morgan's new TV show. I'm Jack Royston, Newsweek's chief royal correspondent. And I'm Kristen Meinzer, a royal watcher based in the U.S. And this is Newsweek's Royal Report. Hello, Jack. Hello, listeners. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the show. We are starting things off today with a look at Tina Brown's new royal biography, The Palace Papers, Inside the House of Windsor, The Truth and the Turmoil. The book has only been out a couple of days, and oh boy, Jack, it is already causing a lot of buzz. Yes, Tina Brown is, of course, the famed magazine editor known for her work at Vanity Fair, Tatler, and The New Yorker, and I should obviously also say at Newsweek. Um, She's very (laughs) well connected in the royal world, and she wrote the best-selling 2007 Princess Diana biography, The Diana Chronicles. Yes, and in her newest book, Brown continues the story and builds on it, chronicling the ups and downs of the House of Windsor over the past 25 years and spilling lots of tea, Jack, which is why we're here today to talk about this. Let's get out our tea towels. Let's soak up some of this tea Shall we start with the Sussexes? Yes, absolutely. So one line that really stood out for me, Kristen, is that so she says, basically, the royals knew that Harry was going to leave. They knew from, well, certainly as early as summer 2019. But she actually, in an interview, gave the impression that they might have seen this coming possibly even years long, much further ago than that, which made me wonder if they saw this coming, why was it handled so in such a messy way you know like if if they really did know that harry was deeply deeply unhappy in the royal family which is what tina brown says why was a concrete effort not made to kind of get control of the sussex exit and make sure it happened in a smooth way yeah um i have questions about that too i also have questions about the royal staff that harry and megan were surrounded by during all of this i mean The staff members, of course, talk to Tina Brown. Tina Brown is so well-connected. She somehow manages to always talk with all the courtiers and the butlers and everybody else and, you know, all the downstairs people and the upstairs people. And uh, they made it really clear, Harry and Meghan staffers, that they had a lot of disdain for Harry and Meghan. They felt that they had an addiction to drama. They felt that Harry and Meghan should have bided their time and not made it about them. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. These staffers are terrible. They're telling Tina Brown terrible things. If if the firm was more committed to what Harry needed, they maybe should have had different staffers around Harry and Meghan and a different plan in place. So there's a lot of the palace perspective in this book, I think, isn't there? Which is interesting because mm-hmm. it's already made a huge impact in America. So she's Tina's done um, interviews with the New York Times, the Washington Post. It feels like she's all over some of those big powerhouse media organizations in America, which um, is probably a, a little 
slightly bigger impact than a lot of the memoirs we've had. Maybe not all, but certainly a lot of them. Um, and this is she's uh, there's actually certain things in there that are pretty similar to stuff that appeared in the British media in the aftermath of Meghan and Harry's uh, exit announcement. So, for example, she has this stuff about the Queen being blindsided by Harry um, when Harry and Meghan first announced their roadmap to leave. So she's clearly spoken to to some very high level, well connected people in the palace, and they've given her that royal perspective, which um, which probably more ordinarily finds its home in the British media. Yes. And those staffers do not hold back. They say things, for example, about Prince Harry being a very angry young man long before Meghan ever entered the picture. You know, he took up boxing to deal with his rage so he wouldn't actually punch other people. He, um, you know, was angry at the tabloid press uh, for good reason. They were not just because of his mother, but, you know, they were tapping his phones. They were lying, impersonating other people in order to get close to the royals to get scoops on stories and so on. Yeah, there's there's times when Tina Brown comes across like she is uh, sympathetic to Harry and Meghan, and there's other times when she's quite critical of them. Um, she actually compares their exit from royal life to America's exit from Afghanistan. She says that it was a necessary end executed with maximum chaos. Um, and so I think, and she, the other thing actually she said in an interview was, uh, she said that British people think that she was too sympathetic to Harry and Meghan, but Americans think that she wasn't sympathetic enough. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> she she cuts a kind of I guess there's a, that is a degree of balance, um, but the one thing you know, there are definitely lines in that book that would up if you're a fan of Meghan and Harry there are definitely lines in that book that would probably upset you. There are probably also some lines in there that would upset uh, supporters of William and Kate and and royalists. I mean, you know, I know that um, she suggests that Harry is the was the only person really who could bring uh, William down to earth you know, from his kind of future king pedestal. Um, and she frames Harry as being quite an important part of William's life that she, that he lost, sorry. Um, so, you know, there's it's, there's a little bit of both in the book. But yeah, I mean, if you are a kind of full-blooded Harry and Meghan fan and you're reading this book, there is going to be stuff in there that winds you up. Yeah, and I'll just say it. I, I do feel like Tina Brown is taking sides here and maybe she is a little less empathetic uh, to the Sussexes than I would be. I think what really comes through, though, here is that she feels that Harry and Meghan could could and probably should have done things differently. She also talks a little bit, um, and in the interviews publicising the book, about Harry and Meghan's kind of post-royal commercial life. She says some quite scathing things about it. She says Meghan doesn't really have a brand, um, that they weren't prepared for how difficult it would be without the palace giving them this kind of guaranteed, inevitable platform. So she says, you know, like if if Buckingham Palace or Kensington Palace calls up and says, you know, can you... uh, do such and such a project nobody turns down that call but she she suggests that once you're outside of the kind of palace world um, you are then under greater pressure to constantly produce and to constantly renew and reinvigorate your image and commercial prospects Um, she's quite scathing i think about the fact that obviously we haven't yet had anything come out of the netflix and spotify deals yeah yeah i mean I I would say there, in that case, Tina Brown is maybe being a little bit more critical of Meghan and Harry than I would personally like, just because I think it's a big adjustment period. You know, 
leaving royal life, this is something that Harry was born into after, you know, a thousand years of his family bloodline doing this. It's not something that you're going to snap your fingers and suddenly overnight you're going to have adjusted to this new life. So, um, yeah, Tina Brown, I think, maybe was a little harder on them than she needed to be there. Um, But I also want to point out someone else who is hard on Meghan and Harry in this book, and that is Meghan's dad. Never turns down an opportunity to speak unkindly about his daughter and his son-in-law. And he does speak with Tina Brown in this book, and he calls Harry the snottiest man I have ever heard in my life. And this was uh, especially leading up to the wedding of Harry and Meghan, and when Meghan's dad was in the hospital... Harry said, you need to be better about how you talk with the media. You need to know when to stay quiet, essentially. And Meghan's dad did not like that and thought Harry was just as snooty as could be. Interestingly, uh, he actually did a, a new interview this week, Thomas Markle, where he um, he suggested that Meghan was a bad mother for leaving the kids in California yeah. on a visit to Europe, which, you know, I mean... I guess if if the world is entitled to call Thomas Markle a bad father, then maybe he's entitled to call Meghan a bad mother. But it certainly took me by surprise, I'll admit that. Oh, yeah. Your daughter goes on a business trip for a few days, so that makes her a bad mother? That makes (laughs) all the working mothers in the world, oh, they're all terrible moms. They have to go on business trips sometimes. How terrible. The interesting thing about it is he's so glowing about the Queen, and the Queen um, left her kids in Britain for about six months when she went on an absolutely gargantuan royal tour in 1953 um, around actually some of the Commonwealth countries that the royals are visiting this year for the Jubilee. Um, around kind of the Caribbean, Australia, and and those kinds of countries. Um, So obviously he has presumably not read his royal history to know that um, there was an implicit (laughs) criticism of the very woman he was claiming to defend um, in that interview. Shall we move on to other folks in the House of Windsor that uh, Tina Brown has some thoughts on in her book? Yes. So tell me what you think of how she discusses William and Kate. Well, she depicts Kate very much like the old school, weighty, Katie, wisteria sisters story that we heard, you know, back in the days when Kate and Will were courting. Um, If you don't recall, the wisteria sisters was a tabloid term used to describe Kate and her sister, Pippa, that they were like wisteria. They were fragrant, they were beautiful, and they could climb, 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 climb. And uh, yeah, Tina Brown makes clear that Kate and her mother, Carol, had a plan. They set out to get Will that Kate actually, even though she was accepted to the University of Edinburgh, that as soon as she learned that William was going to be going to the University of St. Andrews, she applied there. And then uh, once you know, ends up in the same dormitory as Will and then ends up being roommates with him. Everything goes according to plan. And uh, it was all laid out by Kate and her mother, according to Tina Brown. But, you know, that's a story we've heard before, but Tina Brown does not hold back in it. But she also, notably, thinks that Kate is the savior of this institution, that, you know, this middle-class girl who wanted to, you know, climb to the top has since transformed herself into very respectable future queen. Yeah, I think Kate does come across quite well in the book, doesn't she? Um, Tina clearly does uh, does like the Duchess of Cambridge. She does also say she talks a little bit about some of the negative media coverage. She actually does, yeah. I, she she mentions some of the social class conversation that the British media had around Kate at the time. Um, so she, gets, she doesn't mention 
everything that was said, but she does give a flavour of some of it. Um, obviously, that Wisteria Sisters thing that you've mentioned, Kristen, very much speaks to like that uh, sneering, aristocratic perspective on the middle classes. Um, and she also mentions Hilary Mantel, uh, the author of Wolf Hall, you know, that acclaimed book of fictional recreation of, uh, of past royal stories. Um, and Hilary Mantel was scathing about Kate in a lecture for the London Review of Books. Um, and a lot of that coverage had a tone of class snobbery to it um and interestingly tina brown compares that and actually some of the experiences of other royal wives to megan's uh, accounts of the of her experiences with the media and she compares it to um you know the way that megan experienced some racist coverage tina brown kind of throws this up as a point of comparison that she feels kate's experienced snobbery on the basis of social class i think that those are not quite fair comparisons, personally. Classism is a real issue in this world, absolutely. But racism and what Megan went through in the press, I, I, I feel like Tina Brown was not making a fair comparison there between these two things. Kate, even though there was a lot of jabbing about her being middle class, still comes from the family of multimillionaires. Fair enough, fair enough. So the um, she also talks a little bit about some of the experiences that Camilla and Fergie had. And um, Fergie... Oh my gosh, being, she sure does. Yeah, so she, t- she talks about Fergie being nicknamed by the media the Duchess of Pork, which I think was a reference to her, to her weight. Ah, uh, yes, I remember those days. That was definitely something that was in the headlines back in the day. They were quite unkind to her. And, you know, honestly, they were unkind to... Die also. They sometimes mm. called her the Princess of Wales, spelling whale, like the great blue whale, you know. But one thing I thought was really interesting about Fergie was also her dynamic with Andrew, according to Tina Brown, and how they talk to each other. Yeah, so this is, um, I mean, there's a quite sort of jaw dropping remark, I think, quoted in the book, isn't there, which is based on a, uh, a visit by an unnamed American media executive to Royal Lodge. So, what was said, Kristen? Um, so this media executive was sitting with Fergie for a project, having a conversation, a meeting, and Andrew walked in and referring to Fergie said, what are you doing with this fat cow? And the executive was stunned at the level of sadism between these two, the way he would talk to Fergie, and yet the fact that he and Fergie choose to still cohabitate and live in Royal Lodge together. Yes, they're in separate wings, but they still choose to, you know, interact with each other and talk to each other this way. And yet, according to Tina Brown, they also 100% have each other's backs. So they're incredibly mean to each other, but they also will always support each other. It's an interesting dynamic. Yeah, she's she's kind of tried to defend him very, at various points in relation to the Epstein stuff, hasn't she? And I'd be fascinated to know how that comment landed with her. Like, does she is that just their relationship, or was she completely crushed by it? Because it's a hugely undermining thing to say to somebody at what was presumably an important business meeting for Fergie. You know, I'm sure she wasn't just having a meeting with an American media executive for the good of her health. Presumably, this was part of some kind of a project that she was working on. I can't imagine being talked to that way, but I mean, I, I also can't really understand their dynamic overall as a couple or former couple, whatever they have going on there. It it sounds terrible, but they also seem very committed to keeping that going. They don't have to live together, but they choose to. 
So we've talked a little bit about Fergie. We should probably talk about Charles and Camilla as well. Uh, Ooh, yes, we should. <laughs> um, can we talk about Camilla sexually? <laughs> I mean, technically we can, <laughs> whether or not we should. Um, I'll let you be the judge. Well, Tina Brown writes that... Um, Charles is and was hypnotized by Camilla sexually. Hypnotized. That's right. Hypnotized by Camilla's sexuality. And he just could not resist her. And even though his three siblings in the mid-80s said, please, you know, that they, they, they did not want Charles to be with Camilla, he just could not deny his attraction to her. He was too hypnotized by her sexually. And she is, quote, his sexual and emotional comfort food. It's extraordinary stuff, isn't it? I mean, I I can't help but see, and you might have a go at me for this, Kristen, but I can almost see a comparison with Harry there. Not like if you le- if you kind of marginalise the sexual aspect of it a little bit, like what you have is a situation where the royals are trying to talk Charles out of this relationship, um, and then you know Harry obviously got very upset with William for trying to talk him out of the relationship with Meghan. It's, but I, I mean, so much has been said over the years about Charles's famous tampon conversation with Camilla, and I feel like <laughs> Tina Brown has just taken one look at that and come back in and just started lobbing a whole load more along those lines into her book. The horse whisper of his emotional needs, I think, was one of the quotes. Um, yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, we learn a lot about Charles and Camilla and sex. And we also learn about Charles's preferred toilet paper in the book, too. Thank you, Tina Brown. We didn't need to know that either. Yeah, so many details, so many details. All right. Well, there's lots more in Tina Brown's book. We don't have time to go through it all because we have other stories to cover and we need to take a quick break. But before we do, a reminder to all of you out there to rate us and review us in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get the show When we're back, does the queen really need protecting? Stay with us. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hi, everyone. We're back with our second story of the day, and it all revolves around Meghan and Harry's visit to the Queen in mid-April. It was Meghan's first trip to Britain since quitting royal duties, and Harry told us all about it in an interview with NBC. Yes, and of course, that interview with NBC blew up. It was everywhere, uh, as, as things with the Sussexes always are. And the comment that really got the most scrutiny was Harry saying that 
He does his best to make sure the queen is protected and has the right people around her. And of course, there was outrage from people who hate the Sussexes saying, what does he know about protecting the queen? How can he possibly protect the queen from all the way over there in California? Uh, He seems to think he's way more important than he is. But Jack, not everybody was criticizing Harry's remarks. No. So um, Omid Scobie, the author of Finding Freedom, a uh, best-selling biography of Meghan and Harry, said he he thinks he can see what Harry was talking about. Um, and specifically, he mentioned a couple of past uh, arguments between the Sussexes and royal staff, um, one of which was actually mentioned by Harry in the Oprah Winfrey interview, which was when... So you had that kind of Christmas in 2019 when Harry and Meghan were first trying to negotiate their way out of royal life. They flew back to Britain in the January and Harry had a meeting set up with the Queen and he felt that the uh, Buckingham Palace staff blocked him from having that meeting. So what do you reckon, Kristen? How do you see all this? Do you agree with Omid? Well, I do. I mean, I, I Omid is an insider. He he knows a lot of people. His sources go deep. He, he talks to people. People tell him things that they don't necessarily tell other people. I, I believe Omid... But I also just want to say in defense of Harry, you know, we all have people in our lives, grandparents, you know, uh, you know, uh, other members of our family who maybe are older and more vulnerable, who maybe we do help out and maybe we are concerned about who they have around them. You know, who hasn't had the great aunt or the grandmother conversation of like, no, grandma, that person actually isn't concerned about the warranty on your car insurance expiring. This is actually, you know, a telemarketer trying to sell you something, or this is somebody who's trying to steal your identity. Like, I totally believe that a grandson would be concerned about their grandmother and saying, hey, just, you know, be mindful. So I kind of feel like maybe Harry sees the palace staff as the telemarketing fraudster and the palace staff yes. see Harry as the telemarketing fraudster. <laughs> I feel like, it's, I feel like <laughs> yes. there's this mutual thing where they both think each other are telemarketing fraudsters um, <laughs> and are fighting over the Queen about it. It actually goes, we've, I mean, we've just spent a whole load of time discussing Tina Brown's book, but Tina Brown actually talks about the same incident that Omid talks about. Um, and so she has, some, she has a quote from the from a palace staffer. So she obviously has the palace side of that story and says that suggests that um, Harry was basically trying to blur the lines between the queen as a grandma and the queen as the uh, sovereign of Britain, um, suggesting that Harry, that when in person, if a royal can get face to face with her in person, she famously caves in. Whereas if it's going to be mm-hmm. an official meeting, everything has to be kind of organized through private secretaries beforehand, an agenda has to be put together and talking points. And then the Queen, under those circumstances, the Queen will behave differently, I guess, you know, uh, reading into it a little bit, you stand her ground a bit more or something like that. So, I mean, that account has come clearly from somebody with inside the palace, but it does kind of suggest that both sides agree about what they're falling out over, which is, it. you know, it does kind of suggest that the palace staffer who spoke to Tina Brown is saying, yes, in fact, you know, they did. Yeah, but yeah, Tina Brown also makes clear the palace staff definitely chooses sides and doesn't think very highly of Harry or Meghan. And so maybe the staff felt they were doing right by the Queen. But I also, yeah, I think that Tina Brown makes clear the staff also just didn't really like Harry and Meghan very much. That is not hidden at all in her interviews with the staff. They make it really clear. They say really ugly things about Harry and Meghan. 
So the other um, instant that um, Omer talks about is a famous, famous argument between um, the Sussexes and Angela Kelly, who is the Queen's dresser, about the tiara Meghan was going to wear on her wedding day. Um, now this is it was this story first appeared on the front page of the Sun, and then was later also addressed in Omer's uh, and Caroline Duran's uh, Finding Freedom biography. Um, basically, the suggestion is that Me- uh, Meghan brought her New York style to London. There was, they wanted to have a hair trial with the tiara on to see how everything was going to look. And um, Angela Kelly basically uh, stood them up. Yeah. Why did she do that, do you think? Well, this, I mean, Omid's suggestion, which might have some truth to it, is basically that she uh, you know, wanted to kind of put them in their place a little bit. I think, I think yeah. perhaps it's possible that the idea of flying in a hairstylist from New York for a hair trial with a tiara is not necessarily something that traditionally uh, a royal family member would do. And perhaps Angela Kelly had a bit of a sort of sniffy um, view of the what she perhaps would have felt was a demand on her on her job. She, we, she's generally referred to as the Queen's Dresser, but I think she does actually these days have slightly loftier titles related to kind of being in charge of the wider royal jewellery and stuff like that. So long story short, to back up what I've already said several times in this episode, the staff didn't really like Harry and Meghan. <laughs> they were sabotaging them. Yeah, they didn't They didn't like Harry and Meghan too much. And, and Harry and Meghan probably didn't like them too much either. I think, um, yeah, so the other part that was in Finding Freedom is that basically Harry wound up having a conversation with the Queen about this and saying... You know, what's why the Queen and Angela are incredibly, famously, incredibly, credibly close. And so Harry wound up in conversation with the Queen saying, you know, what's what's going on here? Not very happy about it. And there's then a bit of a disagree. Well, a bit of it's slightly less clear, shall we say, what the Queen's response was. One account um, from The Sun way back in 2018 was that the Queen put Harry in his place. Um, others, I think, would probably characterize it slightly differently, and probably we will never know definitively exactly what was said. I suppose we won't. Even with the Tina Browns and the Omid Scobies of the world, <laughs> we'll never actually know everything for sure. Well, we are going to take one more quick break, but before we do, just a little reminder to follow us on Twitter. I'm at Jack underscore Royston, and Kristen is at Kristen Meinzer. Um, we also have royal updates there, as well as my latest stories for Newsweek. And when we're back, we've got Donald Trump piling in again on Meghan and Harry in an interview with Piers Morgan. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irving Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. Hello, everybody. We are back with just a very quick hit on two men 
who've always been very, very vocal about their dislike for Harry and Meghan. I'm talking about Donald Trump. I'm talking about Piers Morgan. You know it. Yes, Morgan launched his new show, Piers Morgan Uncensored, on April 25, and Donald Trump was his special guest. Um, of course, the two could not resist the opportunity to have a go at the Sussexes. Oh, and boy, did they ever. And some of the things that Donald Trump said were, of course, as comical as comical could be, spoken in only the way Donald Trump says things, in that way that is huge huge (laughs) you know i'd sort of forgotten about it until i started going back through the interview and you see these things just leap off the page but i mean of course this was like what the news was every single day for about four years yes yes we have to get to more specifics of course about what Piers and donald said about the sussexes uh morgan asked whether trump thought the relationship between Meghan and harry would end badly and of course trump said i do I've been a very good predictor, as you know. I predicted almost everything. It'll end. It'll end bad. And I wonder if Harry's going to go back on his hands and knees back into that beautiful city of London and say, please, you know, I think Harry has been led down a path. (laughs) It's hilarious, isn't it? And so he said um, he also spoke in glowing, glowing terms about the Queen. Um, perhaps unsurprisingly, and he talked particularly about a meeting, a state dinner that he was invited to, and he said the Queen smiled more with him than at any other state dinner that royal staff could recall. Um, but it, it, <laughs> what I love about the way he speaks is the way that he's kind of so, it's everything is so backhanded. Like he says, you know, he's obviously praising the Queen, saying how great it is, saying how great the royals are. But then he's like, you know, state dinners, they're normally a little boring. This wasn't boring. So you do realise that you should like these state dinners. They're a big part of the Queen's job and life, dating back decades. He's like, yeah, they're a little boring. Yeah, they're boring. And also, out of like 100 years of the Queen doing this, I'm the one who made her smile the most at these boring dinners. It's just so transparent. I think they call it emotional leakage, isn't it? That he can't (laughs) not just be completely all there on the table. Like, it's just... (laughs) It's so blindingly obvious that like what's what he's doing, but you can't keep it in. Well, I personally don't want to give much more time to disgraced former President Donald Trump. So shall we just call this a day, Jack? Yes, let's call it a day. And that's it for this episode of The Royal Report. Be sure to join us every other week when we visit the latest royal headlines, embark on some royal deep dives and riff on all things royal. Until next time, I am Kristen Meinzer. And I'm Jack Royston. Thank you for listening, everybody. And a curtsy to you all.